after establishing that we have everything we need to live a fruitful life before God, Peter says that we need to put forth much effort to apply these resources. Uh, He says in verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. And so we are uh, also said in the verses before that to be partakers, to supplement, and again, to make every effort. These are clear indications that there is some kind of deliberate and willful participation that we're to have in using God's power. And we've talked about this before, that it takes great effort for those who say it's just all God and you can't get you know, human volition involved. Peter disagrees with you. Yes, we have to depend upon the Lord, but there's, there are choices that we need to make. Uh, for instance, I have to say no to insecure thoughts to allow Christ to be my security. All right? Um, I have to say no to legalism or feeding the flesh, religious performance, and say yes to the finished work of Christ as my acceptance with God. So it, it takes effort to say no to my fleshly tendency to declare my rights and that I want my needs met now and then say yes to the power of Christ in me to love the people in front of me. So I can obey God in all circumstances because he has granted to me everything, the passage says, pertaining to life and godliness. Well, then Peter begins to kind of expand on this and to give some virtues that will be in our life as we do that, as we depend upon him. And he's enunciated that. We've already spent you know, a week or two talking about that. But then he gives a capstone when he says that love will take place. So let's all stand as we look at this passage. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we again entreat you to be our teacher, to have your Holy Spirit um, not just understand, but to put into practice the things that we're learning here. Lord, it's just so easy to uh, come to church And uh, we make it a habit and uh, check our brains at the door. And for our hearts just to be not engaged. But may that not be the case. Challenge us. Challenge our spirits. Challenge us intellectually. Challenge us in every way possible. Stir us up to love and good deeds. 
as this passage um, lifts up love as the capstone. And so we just give your Holy Spirit freedom to work in us. We humbly admit to you that we don't have the corner on the market, that we don't understand everything about how the Christian life works, but it sure seems clear that Jesus is to be our life and that love is to be a fruit. May that be said of Christ Community Church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, what is love? What is love? In a recent Cosmopolitan article, Pauline Jane Isaac lists the 36 greatest on-screen love stories of all time. She begins, The most famous movie couples have the ability to turn cynics into believers, critics into fans, and can even warm the iciest of hearts. Whether it's a romantic comedy or a drama, the outcome is the same. Love stories make you believe in love. But the title of the article reveals a problem. Sorry, but I just have to say it. These iconic movie couples gave me unrealistic expectations about love. That was the title. Unrealistic expectations are, of course, an issue in marriage. I was just sharing with somebody this morning how it was an issue in my own marriage. Over the years, of course, countless love stories have been told at the box office. Isaac limited her list by selecting stories that met three criteria. These were kind of the unrealistic expectations. The couples have to be aspirational, the chemistry palpable, and most importantly, the love has to be intense. She says, perhaps Hollywood love stories create unrealistic expectations because they are not love stories. An authentic love story is not built on the glamour of aspiration, the feel of chemistry, and the thrill of intensity. Experiences that come and go while love, real love, remains. End quote. God's work of grace in Jesus Christ, I would suggest to you, is a legitimate love story, right? It has the ability to turn cynics into believers. Mm -hmm. Um, Critics into fans. And to take the iciest hearts and warm them. You know, we have heard the old adage that love is blind. G.K. Chesterton, the British writer, wrote this. Love is not blind. That's the last thing it is. Love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. Chesterton argued that real love depends on commitment. The way to love someone as they truly are is to vow to love them no matter what comes. And the more one is committed, the less blind they are to the real person who desires to be loved. I don't think there's any doubt that Peter did not have a Hollywood mindset when he wrote about love. 
and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love in verse 7. So we looked at five virtues uh, that focus on Christ's power in our inner life and a relationship to God. And then we have these last two characteristics. They relate to others. They're kind of two crowning peaks of fully developed Christian character. Brotherly affection and love. Now, brotherly affection is the Greek word Philadelphia. It is used of one having an affection of another befitting of familial or collegial ties. And the word, of course, is used of a city in America. Now, I've known people from Philadelphia. Of course, wonderful people. And brotherly affection works great if you're from Philadelphia or you root for their home teams. But if you, for instance, are a New York Giants fan, okay, there is no love loss. All you got to do is sit in a Philadelphia stadium and listen to the crowd talk about their opponents. So being in the family or having some other bond allows you to enjoy brotherly affection. D.A. Carson addresses why the Christian can express brotherly affection and says this, I suspect that one of the reasons why there are uh, so many exhortations in the New Testament for Christians to love other Christians is because it is not an easy thing to do. The church is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural association, but because they've all been saved by Jesus Christ and have a common allegiance. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake, end quote. Succinctly put, Christians are brothers or sisters in Christ. I've had multiple conversations with my own children, adult children, that when one POs the other, I have to remind them, this is your brother or your sister. And so that means there is a higher calling and that we are required to work this out because you're in our family. This is not just some ordinary Joe on the street. You don't have the option of just ignoring them. Although that's what we often do in the church. But that's not brotherly affection. 1 Peter 1.22 says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth of a sincere brotherly love, love 
one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then we read, let brotherly love continue in Hebrews 13. Loving one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's in Romans 12. And in our passage, Paul attaches godliness with brotherly kindness. It's a fair question. Can one be godly and not love their brother? John answers this question. He's not one to beat around the bush. He says this. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. (laughs) Okay. Brotherly affection does not expect our brother or sister to change before they are loved. I might need to repeat that. Brotherly affection does not expect our brother or sister to change before they are loved. doesn't mean you approve of everything, but you still love. They are loved as they are found. This sounds great in theory until you're asked to love somebody who is not of your political party, not in your denomination. There's not this natural affiliation. You know, many commentators point out that the religious and racial tensions were actually worse in the first century than what they are now. It's hard to imagine. But Roger Thompson, a pastor and author, said this, nothing in uh, modern American racial tensions could match the age-old animosities between Jew and Gentile. A Jew prayed in thanks every day that he was not born a Gentile or a dog. Gentiles despised the cultic, separatistic, and aloof Jews. There was nothing either could find to love about the other. Wrongs and slights and brutalities between the groups were normal. But now the unthinkable has happened. Simultaneous with the revelation and amazing grace of Jesus Christ that saved each one individually, Jesus has made them one new man out of the two thus making peace, the two being Jew and Gentile, now together. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Ephesians 2.16. When the child of God defines him or herself chiefly by being in Christ, then they can begin to express this brotherly affection in the church. But what we naturally see is this person of that political party, this person who voted for that guy, this person who refused to wear a mask or did wear a mask. Sorry to bring it up again, but it was real, right? And instead of loving, the first thing out of our mouth idiot. Can't believe 
these people, right? As Christians continue to see themselves primarily as political devotee, a a racial emblem, a denominational disciple, or a, a Christian nationalist, they will find themselves stabbing others with prejudice or experiencing endless paper cuts of irritation. Your attempts at drawing continual distinction between you and others does not define you. God's mercy through Jesus Christ is making a new nation, a new people, the living church in which there is no Jew or Gentile. It will take great grace coupled with willful tenacity or, you know, effort, as Peter said, to move against the talking points, the party politics, the talk radio hyperbole. Taking Thompson's words, we become accustomed to being mad and adrenalized by an offense. We tend to match the programs, watch the programs that nurture our own cherished biases. Listen, I suppose I love just as much as anyone else to see God answer prayer, to see God do miracles, to see God heal. And we've seen that. And I thank God for that. But you know, other religions make the same claim. Sorry to burst your bubble. But it's true. Let me tell you something. There is one thing that stands out from the New Testament that other religions cannot duplicate. Christian church broke down the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked Jewish congregations. Paul, who as a rabbi, was given thanks that he was not born a woman, slave or Gentile, marveled over this radical change. He said, there there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Where else can we see this kind of people? Hmm. However ineptly we try it, to mix men of different, you know, castes, races, social groups, we're still to strive for this, even though we can miss the mark. But I want to suggest to you that may be the greatest miracle. Love. The diversity within the church complicates rather than simplifies life. Is it any wonder that it takes great effort for brotherly kindness? Again, we naturally surround ourselves with people of the same age, Economic class opinion. Church offers a place where infants and grandparents, unemployed and executives, immigrants and patriots can be united in the gospel. Where else can you find that? Where the unity is palpable, 
Peter calls it brotherly kindness because of the spiritual family ties. But he doesn't stop there. He expands our affections by then adding the term love. It's that agape word that you're familiar with in verse 7. This is the kind of love that God exhibits towards sinners. Remember, God so loved who? The world. Or Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us. And that while we were still what? Sinners. Christ died for us. You know, the phileo love of friendship is where partners have this kind of mutual solace with one another. Eros, sexual love, is where partners seek mutual satisfaction. There's a, there's a mutuality to it. Mutual feelings fuel the relationship. But with agape, it's not necessarily mutual. When God loved us, he loved us when we didn't love him. He loved us as sinners, the Bible. I'm using that word because that's the word the Bible uses. People who were against God. People who didn't listen to God. We did nothing to earn that love. He did not love us because we were in the right church, the right denomination. We did nothing to merit the love. God is love. That is who he is. He seeks our highest good. And he made the greatest sacrifice as his expression of agape. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we are the recipients of God's agape love. And as a result, we read in 1 John, by this, we know love. Here's the picture, here's the definition, here's the model, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought, we what? We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Sacrifice. Give up. Something. And if necessary, our very lives. Listen, if brotherly kindness is the love for those in the church, maybe we could expand it and say agape love is for those outside the church. Now, it's not that we don't agape love one another here, but he's, I, think, I think he's expanding the circle. Like God himself, believers are to love people who don't know him. And let me just add, that's regardless of their religion, regardless of their sex, regardless of their color, regardless of their politics, and regardless of their sexual proclivities. We don't have to agree. We don't have to stay silent when it's appropriate to speak to issues, but love is to always be our calling card. The world we live in croons and talks a lot about love. It talks the politics of love. It makes movies about love. But it cannot reproduce love. Not agape love. 
we are seeing alarming occurrences of violence, wars, wounded hearts, petty grievances. I don't like being lectured by those on the silver screen trying to tell me what love is while they're in a revolving door of marriages. From the book, Do the Next Right Thing, we read this. Giving all the pining, crying, craving, and promising that gush through popular culture, one would think that love is our native language. But in fact, love is perhaps the most shape-shifting word in our vocabulary. It can be used to mobilize the masses to eradicate injustice or help earthquake victims. Then in the next moment, it is used in a soundbite to justify somebody's demanding narcissism or a lack of self-control. Love is sold as the promised dividend when you sign up for that vacation cruise, shower with that bar of soap, or buy that car. Love, it's what makes a Subaru a Subaru. The church is to be the real reflection of love. And in John 15, John 17, excuse me, Christ was praying that the world would know that we are his followers by what? The way we love. First John 4, 9 says, In this the love of God has been made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. You know, it's interesting when you hear people trying to define, and even Christians trying to define marriage today. We rarely hear from Ephesians 5. Because you see, at its pinnacle, marriage is supposed to be an ultimate object lesson of love. You know why? Because there's great diversity between a man and a woman. If you think there's not, You've not been married. Great diversity, okay? And yet, there's to be love and unity. I heard a podcast with Joe Rogan and Matt Walsh, and they were debating about what love is. It could never get to agape. Now, they talked about, um, Matt Walsh said, you know, about procreation, and I would agree with them. That's a part. But unity in diversity as a man and woman. Without that, it leaves marriage without the capstone. It leaves marriage without its primary objective. It's to be a picture of how God loved his people. This unconditional agape that I love you when I don't get what I want I love you when you were critical of me I love you when I don't feel like it it's not going to be perfect none of us are but it will last it will be evident and Lord knows it will take effort. Amen? Yeah. Must have a lot of single people in here. 
Gary Player is a Hall of Fame golfer, and as he was hitting a bucket of balls on the practice range one day, two passers-by were watching, every shot of which Gary Player, it was a solid hit, sweet spot of the club. I can do that maybe one out of 90 shots. Um, I mean, every swing was a study of fluidity. One of the observers said, man, I'd give anything to be able to hit a three-iron like that. Mr. Player overheard the remark, and he turned to him, and he said, Really? Would you give anything? Would you come out here every day and hit 500 balls until your hands blistered and your back ached? Would you seek advice from a coach about your flaws? Would you take the risk that the investment of your practice would someday pay off? Really? Would you give anything? (laughs) That comes to mind when we think about love. Because in our day, people want the result, but they're unwilling to put forth the effort, and more importantly, they're not drinking from the source in Jesus Christ. And we, as the church, are without excuse in this regard. In our homes, in our marriages, and as a church, we fail. I get it. I get it. I'm saying sorry a lot, okay? God has to humble me a lot. If you have a hard time putting a description to love, there's a pretty good one here. Love is patient, kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. And he comes back again to love. You know, the next time you're prone to dog other people in the other political party or on the wrong side of some moral argument about the issue of the day, remember that love is saying yes to the person. It's the undeterred resilience of dogged perseverance. It wants what God wants, and God's love never wears out. And we have that divine power in us. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when these qualities are increasing, Peter is saying there is an ongoing maturity or growth in grace. So there's not a disconnect between doctrine and the practice of grace. There is increasing love and increasing virtue and increasing goodness. So how does one grow? Well, 
I think we're pretty aware of how one gets stuck, right? Let me tell you how a person can get stuck. Learn to be defensive at every turn. Do not admit you're wrong. Fight and claw and get angry when you're hurt. Learn to argue instead of listening. Insert yourself into as many conversations as possible to let people know how smart you are. Make sure that others know about your accomplishments. And then get mad at God. And get mad at others when you don't get what you want. Do all of these things and the qualities of 2 Peter will fade and your spiritual life will be like a barren tree. To increase, to mature, to grow. That's the call. Let me suggest something. If there is a hitch in our spiritual giddy-up, it usually comes during trials and hardships. Trials and hardships are the superfood of Christian maturity diets. When our perspective is to escape those trials, see all hardships as something that we did wrong, make comfort our main goal, then our spiritual food becomes Captain Crunch and Donuts. By the way, Janet loves to tell people that when she met me, I would put a half a cup of sugar on top of my Captain Crunch. <laughs> That's how I could keep this slim, fit body. I don't do it anymore. Just a quarter of a cup on top. No, I don't. I, don't. I gave up Captain Crunch. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Greek word for ineffective can be translated idle, lazy, useless. It is the opposite of effort. We could say it this way. It is spiritual entitlement. It's the idea that God owes us health, wealth, and prosperity. And anything short of it is somebody's fault. God, me not having enough faith. But here's the price you pay for that. The more we feel entitled, the less grateful we are. Author Chris Winfield shares his thoughts on gratitude. He said, why did this have to happen to me? It didn't matter if it was something big, my dog gets cancer, good friend dies or something little, flight is delayed, spilled something on my shirt. I was in a constant state of poor me. This all started to change once I began writing a gratitude list every single day 
for the past 34 months, and it has changed my life profoundly. He spoke of how difficult it was at first, but he could always find something to be grateful for. And it got easier the more he did it, and he noticed it changed his attitude. According to the Laboratory of Neuroimaging, the average person has about 70,000 thoughts each day. There's one problem with this. The vast majority of those thoughts are negative. Gratitude can work to stop these negative thought patterns by replacing it with thankfulness. Hmm. You know, I, I don't think sometimes we really believe that we can change our attitude, our perspective, but, but you can. I may not be able to change my circumstances so much, but I can change my perspective. To be unfruitful, as the passage says in 2 Peter, is to be unproductive. We are meant for more than just taking up space. We could look at whether we're serving, and that might give us a clue. But that's not what this passage says. And if we're going to stay true to the text, notice, they keep from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if Peter is saying they're doing very little or nothing to grow deeper, more intimate, have better fellowship with Jesus Christ. Jesus said it this way, Abide in me, and I in you. And the branch, as the branch, cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So our life is hidden in Christ. Christ is the source. Christ is the model. Christ is the goal. Christ is our strength. Stephen Olford wrote, the fact is only one person ever lived the Christian life, and it was Jesus. And he did so to the pleasure and glory of his Father. Having fleshed out the perfect life and undeviating obedience to the will of God, he became the author of eternal salvation to those who obey him. After effecting that eternal salvation through the blood of his cross and the power of his resurrection, he ascended to heaven to impart his life through the Holy Spirit, to all who believe his gospel and receive his full salvation. So the Christian life is nothing less than the outliving of the indwelling Christ on the principle of dependent faith. End quote. This has been Peter's foundation in 2 Peter 1. Christ is in the big picture Christ is in the details. Christ forgives the past, empowers the present, and Christ gives hope in our future. Christ is there in every trial and temptation. And perhaps our greatest effort 
is in humbling ourselves to recognize our need of him in every instance. Because the only thing I can think of is that that forgetfulness in not doing that is our own self-management, arrogance, pride that I can do it on my own. Our greatest effort is in humbling ourselves to recognize our need of him in every instance. Let's pray.